you know the place doesn't have to be full for the singing to sound good. You all sound really good this morning. So, George, would you come? We're really happy to have George with us again this morning. And uh, after you're done, there will be a closing song. Okay? Sir? Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we just thank you that George is here this morning. And we just pray that as the word is open, you would speak through him. We would hear what you have to say. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dear congregation, it is good to be with you again this morning. I've looked forward to this. I trust you've prayerfully prepared your hearts for gathering this morning, too. As we get started, I would call your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Appreciate our selections this morning as a good Irishman. I particularly appreciate that last one. Thank you. After all that fine singing, let's see if we've got any voice left here to work with. I do continue to pray for you as you seek God's man for your pastor. I understand that can make for a difficult time for a congregation. Unsettling. How long? Oh, Lord. So I pray for you for strength, for encouragement. And I commend your elders for the strength that they bring to the congregation. Prayer. Thank you. This morning, my theme is to give it a title, a working title, is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some messages are more uh, evangelistic and some more of exhortation. I'll be going for the latter this morning. My goal is to encourage you in your resolve to stay strong and close to Christ as you await your coming pastor to lead you. Second Corinthians four will be focusing on um, verse six, but I want to lead up to it with the first five. Let's read that first. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For over two millennia now, God's gospel has been proclaimed throughout the world. At times it has been preached more faithfully to the world, to the word, and at times less. Every generation of faithful believers has the great responsibility and task of defending the word and its teaching from compromise and attack both outside the church and occasionally even from within. Whether from ignorance of biblical truth or deliberate deception and concealing of the word, the result is nearly the same. Just this, denying God's people of the pure, soul-satisfying, God-breathed, Christ-saturated, spirit-anointed, nourishing pastors of God's word. 
such as we see in Psalm 23. This necessary guarding of the gospel is not tasked, however, just to pastors and church leaders, but to the whole body of Christ, the local church. That's each of us. Pastors, yes. Deacons, yes. Elders, yes. Absolutely. But it's to each of us. We might look and say, well, battle for the Bible. That's been won. That's been won. At one time, perhaps there was a season of enjoyment of that. But every generation experiences similar threats against the word. We must reaffirm it at every turn. This is God's word. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is inspired. It is without error at any point. It is fully trustworthy. For for God is its author. And so it cannot error. False teachers have abounded in every age and afflicted the church in no less today than in Paul's day, such as he's just spoken of in chapter in chapter four of our text. And in our text, he, too, was clarifying the substance of the gospel in the face of false teaching. So this is helpful for us today. If there really is nothing new under the sun, then we better understand that the same assaults on the scripture today, though perhaps under different names, are really the same tired accusations they've always been. And so we must be well acquainted with God's word if we're to to uh, properly, maturely respond. To recognize the error, we must be well acquainted with the truth. And as we must, we begin and end with God's word. So we notice verse six today, especially. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a mouthful. So we're going to unpack that statement by statement. For God, who said. God has spoken clearly and unchangeably. We're told in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, your God, do not change. It's an absolute statement. It's not, I don't change sometimes, I don't change every other century, but I do not change. The same God of Genesis 1-1 is the same God in 2 Corinthians 4-6, and the same one at the conclusion of Revelation. God doesn't change. Oh, well, he's an angry God in the Old Testament. He's a loving God in the New. He doesn't change. Look in Revelation and see if you don't see God's fury. Look in the Old Testament, see if you don't see God's love. Israel still stood to the New Testament, didn't they? God is loving. He's patient. He's long suffering with us. No less than he was with Israel. We often read for it is written or God has spoken or you have read. That's a key of its authority for its reference to God. Jesus often did this through the Gospels, didn't he? You've heard it said. Oh, he's speaking of human tradition. But when he says, for it is written, he's appealing to the scriptures and he always affirms it. It is written. That's its authority. Isaiah one, two says, hear, O heavens and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Consider Hebrew one, one and two long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. Not with suggestions. He spoke authoritatively. But in these last days, well, he spoke previously by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed 
the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God speaks and things happen. The principal difference between man speaking and God speaking is that God speaks from his holy perfections, whereas we speak from fallen natures. On any given day, we may be right, we may be wrong, but when God speaks, he speaks always rightly. He's always true. Matthew twelve thirty four. You brood of vipers, Jesus said. Wasn't seeking to win friends. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We understand that man is sinful, therefore he speaks sinfully. But when God, who is pure, holy, righteous, supremely excellent, speaks, it's truly qualitatively good and pure. And we also see in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Inasmuch as we are reading God's word, we are true and we are right. But when we speak from our own heart, our own nature, we are often susceptible to error. Well, we read next, let light shine out of darkness. This is a direct reference to God as creator in Genesis 1-3. With the decisive fall of Adam and Eve in Eden, their rebellion against God's one prohibition brought death and ruin to mankind without exception. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. For there is none righteous, no, not one. And plunged the world into spiritual darkness. Paul says as much. Notice Romans chapter 1. We will sometimes hear people describe other people or mankind in general as basically good. But that would take a very nuanced approach to the word good. Good based on water compared to water. Whom? Notice God's assessment recorded by Paul. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's the great crime. We know better. And we suppress the truth. It isn't just unbelief. But it's the suppression of the obvious. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, that thought really continues through verse 32, but we'll continue. We'll be back. Chapter two, verse five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. His righteous judgment, that is, when his fair judgment is revealed. God is not extreme. He's spot on every time. Chapter 3, verse 10. Here's a picture of the basic goodness of man. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. We hear about seeker churches, about seekers. Who, who's seeking? What are they seeking? They're not seeking for God, according to Paul. I don't know what they're seeking, but whatever it is, it's not, <laughs> it's not God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. And here it is, the summation of all of that, the reason for all of that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not fear their creator. They do not acknowledge him. They do not honor him. Rather, they will thumb their noses in his face. They do not fear him. Here's the basic goodness of man. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's the state of man before the arrival of Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah. However, with the arrival of Jesus Christ came a blinding white hot light from glory down to earth, piercing that darkness. We see in John 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It looked like it to many at Calvary, didn't it, that the darkness won, but it didn't. Satan must have been doing a happy dance there for a few moments there at Calvary. But just a few days later, People, however, dead in their sin, do not want this divine light. Naturally, we don't. For we see in John 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. This word know, this is a word that... It's far more than intellectual knowledge, just knowing a fact. This is a word of affection here. He didn't know him. One knows his wife. There's an affection there, a warmth, a relationship. There's, there's something far more than just knowledge. The world did not have any affection for this man, Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 3.19 tells us why. Just after our beloved John 3.16, we see this. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light that is the light. Christ himself. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Of course their works were evil because their hearts were evil, according to Jeremiah. That's our trouble. In comparison with God himself, we are evil. That's what Paul just described in Romans 3, isn't it? Notice 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Now it's speaking about believers here. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. No sin, no death, no evil. If we say 
We have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, this word walk, this is a reference to a lifestyle. Near King James, it will use the word conversation. Let your conversation be such and such. In today's vernacular, that suggests something that we say, the things we talk about. But that word has changed in meaning. And now a better modern word for conversation in King James would be lifestyle. See, it's far more than just the way we speak. It's the way we walk, the way we live. And the way we walk demonstrates the real condition of our heart. Are we walking in the light that is walking according to uh, Christ's likeness, such as we we suggested in Sunday school this morning? That's a suggestion of the condition of our heart, because if we say that we're in the light, that is that we are a Christian when in fact we're walking in darkness. Well, the proof's in the pudding and we show that we really don't belong to him at all. Notice similarly, John, chapter eight, verse thirty four. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Well, that's a bit awkward. How do you explain that? I sin daily. Does that mean that I'm in various ways? Does that mean I'm still a slave to sin? Now, what the language here in the Greek Testament is suggesting is your lifestyle. Whoever makes it a habit or daily lives walking in sin, they're showing that they are a slave to sin. For we read, no man can serve two masters. He'll love the one and he'll hate the other. Or he'll despise the one and prefer the other. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a slave to sin and a slave to God at the same time. We do still sin from time to time. We're in the flesh. It's inevitable. And for the true believer, they sin far more than they want to. It grieves us for we know it grieves the heart of God. And every time that we sin, we are forfeiting blessing for a momentary pleasure of whatever. This is a reference to whoever makes it a habit. Whoever spends their life just walking in sin matter-of-factly as though it's nothing at all. But for us, what characterizes us? Does a life of sin characterize you? Or does a life that would seek to please Christ characterize you and you have those occasional moments of putting your foot in your mouth, of tripping over that same familiar sin that's still there that you plead God would take away? You ever wonder why God doesn't take it away? He says, you must be holy as I'm holy. I'm still sinning. God, how can I be holy as you're holy when your spirit and I'm still in the flesh how can I obey that? Recall Paul's conundrum in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am. The good that I want to do, I don't. And the wickedness, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I keep doing. God help me. We're in the flesh. And yet you'll recall Paul had that. And God did not remove it from him prior to his death. Why? Why would God declare to us that we must be holy as he is holy 
And yet see an example where one has a known sin in their own life that they would be rid of. Should God grant it and yet God leaves it. We also read this morning Christ himself saying, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is nothing that I call you to do. You can't do it on your own. You need Christ. Moment by moment. We are daily to stab our sin to death. Deny it. Kill it. Every single day. We cannot yield an inch to the flesh. We need Christ every moment. Hasn't that been your experience? We must. And by leaving that, they are not ridding us of it. He reminds us daily. We need him. We need him. So our life is not characterized by walking in habitual sin. The unbelievers is. Well, to this day, little has changed. People still demonstrate their hardness of heart by denying their sinfulness. We also see in 1 John uh, 1.8, if we say we have no sin, there are some today who say that they've achieved a, a degree of spirituality such that they no longer have sin. That must be nice. That's not been my experience. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It sounds so ludicrous. It's unbelievable. But some suggest that they, they have they've attained sinlessness. Well, John says this. If, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, what truth is that? Is that the truth of the word or is that the truth Embodied in the person of Christ. Or is it maybe both and? You recall in uh, John 17, 17, he's praying to the Father for his disciples and for his disciples and says, Father, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It sounds like he's making a, a direct connection between both the word inscripturate and the word incarnate. That's remarkable. So if that's the case, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth, both the knowledge of the word and the person of truth, Christ himself, is not in us. Small wonder, then, that the world would be acting as it does. It does not have or know the truth. Experientially. That's a problem. But that's how we can know one by their fruit, isn't it? Because the spirit only indwells a believer, right? If that's the case, then, then the world cannot produce spiritual fruit, for it does not have the Holy Spirit within them. And yet, if you have the spirit, you will produce fruit. It's inevitable to varying degrees, depending on your your stage of walk with Christ. It will be more clear some days than others. But we will be known by our fruit. Jesus himself noted in Mark ten eighteen that no one is good except God alone. I sometimes am reminded of this. Perhaps it's snarky of me, but someone will say, well, how you doing? Someone says, I'm good. And I think, no, you're not. Of course, you're not good. Only God is good. I know what they mean. 
I know what they mean. I don't mean to be that way, but just it's sarcastic, I know. But I think that it reminds me, you're not good. Nobody's good but God. You're not God. And wasn't that the point? They said they came to Jesus and said, good teacher. They've been denying that he's the Messiah, but they're saying, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? Don't you know only God is good? And I think it's as if he's kind of being a little sarcastic too, saying, you realize what you just called me? Got to believe he had a sense of humor. But profound truth in that. How do you define good based on human standards or based on God's? Because we just read a short while ago, didn't we, in Romans 3? There is none that does good. One must be qualitatively good if they're to do any good. And since only God is good, it's small wonder then that we would not do godly good. Certainly not apart from the spirit within us to work it out in us. Again, another reminder at every turn, we need Christ moment by moment. And where do we go primarily to find him? The word, the word. Why? We're building up to that. Paul agrees with this in Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. That's a dismal picture. That sounds almost too harsh. But again, aren't we masters at flattering ourselves? Really? I'm not that bad. They're worse. We're good at deflecting, too, aren't we? If we can always, if you look hard enough, you can always find somebody worse off than you are. And that's helpful when we're guilty of sin. It's helpful to find someone else to pin it on. Well, Paul there was quoting Psalm 14. This goes back a long ways. Notice next, though, in our text. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. Like a telegram, stop. It has shown in our hearts. This is big. Because the light came into the world. The world did not discern him. Didn't know him. Didn't want him. Didn't like him. But the world has not overcome it. This light. However, he has shown in our hearts. There's a difference. What's that difference? Just as God commanded the light to shine out of darkness at creation. Did you notice whenever he says, let there be without argument, without hesitation, it happens. When God speaks, things happen immediately. There's no debate. There's no argument. There's nothing but just immediate obedience. It happens by the power of his voice. He does this. Recall, even when Jesus did that, when he gave life back to Lazarus. Man's been dead for days. And King James' vernacular sister say, he stinketh. You know, he did stinketh. And yet Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus came forth. The son of God himself who speaks life into dead things, who makes something out of nothing, said, come forth, you dead man. And the dead man came forth and he's hungry. We come forth from the spiritual grave into spiritual light, from the domain of darkness to the domain of Christ's light, God brings us forth. And what are we? We're hungry for gospel truth. The same thing. Well, the same one commands the gospel to shine in the hearts of sinners 
creating divinely changed hearts and lives. So we don't rebel against it as the world of darkness does. We respond for he makes us able. Colossians 1.3 says, He, that is Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has done this. And notice what he's done this unto. First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And isn't that our happy privilege every Lord's Day? We gather together to thank the Lord for his goodness. For the many blessings he brings to us. What are blessings? But those things that just make us supremely happy. Blessed is the man, we read in Psalm 1, who meditates on the law. That is God's word, day and night. We are truly happy. Happy in the Lord. And that's what we get to do each Lord's Day, isn't it? We get to... Pray the word, sing the word, hear the word, preached and taught. We get to fellowship around the basis of the word. And even then we see another comparison between the word written and the word living, the word Christ. For we read in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and is God. The word Notice these different things he's called us to in First Peter. We're a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people. So that we can proclaim his, this wonderful old-fashioned word. We can proclaim his excellencies. That's beautiful. I like those old words we don't get to use. It sounds kind of pithy and gets people's attention. Kind of like when we use the word mortification. That's a big one. We don't hear that much. So kind of, what? What's that? But it's a good word. Notice just one example of what it is we're to do. Now that he's transferred us from the domain of darkness, which is death and sin and condemnation, and he's brought us from that, drug us out of that, and dropped us into his kingdom of light. Here's one of the things he's called us to do. That is, we're priests. What do priests do? They make sacrifices. And isn't that what the priests did in Jesus' day and, and prior? They made sacrifices on behalf of the people. That's what we see happening in Hebrews. The people who sinned had to have a sacrifice given on their behalf. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, right? So the priest had to do their job, which was a daily, unending task of sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And we understand that it says also in Hebrews that the, the blood of bulls and calves could never take sin away. But it was a requirement to show that this sin is so heinous in God's sight, something has to die. Problem was, the things that they were called to, to kill at God's direction couldn't do it. It couldn't do it in a show. They needed something better. They didn't have it. And those were his directions to date. And so that's what they did. Priests, sacrifice. Notice now that we are in Christ, what our priesthood calls us to do. Notice Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 15 and 16. And this is for all of us. This isn't just for pastors and teachers. This is for each of us. So, dear churchman, church sister, 
This is for you. In the South, we'd often refer to each other as brothers. I was raised in Southeast Louisiana. And you're just brother so-and-so, brother so-and-so, well, and sister so-and-so. Well, when you talk to the brethren, what do you do about the ladies? They're the sistren, right? It sounds funny, but what do you call them, you know? It, the things that stick in our mind, right? At the most inopportune times. <laughs> Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Through him, that is through Christ... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, singing is one expression of that, certainly. And my, but we hear Rich singing on the Lord's Day, don't we? That's a beautiful sound. But we also praise God in other ways. I think of an old catechism that asks, what is the chief end of man? Or in plain speak, what's the primary purpose of man? Why do we exist? Some say to evangelize. Okay, fair enough. But I suggest to you that even that's secondary. Our primary purpose for existence is this. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what it says. That dates to the 1600s. They were on to something. Where do we get that? Well, at least one place. Recall Paul saying, for whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. How do we praise God? Singing, yes. Praying, yes. Serving one another as the call went out this morning for those who are sick. Yes. Love one another, especially the brothers and sisters. But we can also glorify the Lord in other things that we might think are a bit too simple. They, they couldn't possibly count. Changing a baby's diaper. My kids just kind of, ooh. I tell them, no, it's true. It's true. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. Who's our neighbor? Well, everyone. That's right, everyone. Everyone's our neighbor, including your brother. Ooh. Yeah, your brother. Yeah, your brother is your neighbor, too. Sorry. You've got to love your neighbors yourself. That's what Jesus said. He loves you when you were a sinner. When you, when you hated him, in contrast to loving him, does your brother hate you? Well, I don't think so. Well, then you're supposed to really love him. And we're told, love one another, especially the brothers. Now, we know that means Christian brothers, not necessarily brothers in the house. But the point's the same. We love one another. What's love do? Love meets needs. Love is not conditional. I'm going to do good to you as long as you're nice to me. But as soon as you irritate me, you're done. But that's how we act, isn't it? That's how we are. Rub my fur the wrong way and I'm done. But we love one another. And so whether it means changing a baby's diaper, scrubbing a toilet, mowing the lawn, going shopping, you can still glorify God with that. If you can do it whether you eat or drink, then how come we can't do it with everything else, right? Glorify God. We are priests. Peter says we're priests and priests make sacrifices. And so we bring, as an example, the sacrifice of praise. One simple way I know to teach my kids is to say when you sacrifice something, it means it costs you. It's not flipping a few coins in the plate. Some would say you give till it hurts. It's going to cost you. Time, effort, something. 
Until then, it's not much of a sacrifice. It's the overflow. Recall Jesus giving the parable about the, uh, the, late, the widow's mite. She put in what? A coin? Two? Compared to what these others had been throwing in there? And the disciples were incredulous. She gave more? And he said they gave from their overflow, from their surplus. She gave all she had at cost. We are to render the sacrifice of praise. Well, why? Much as sunlight through a window reveals impurities in the air. You ever see all that dust float flying around the air and thought, I thought we're cleaner than that. Well, so does the light of God's glory in the person of Christ reveal our sinful impurities. We call that conviction. And just as the revealed presence of uncleanness in the air results in trying to bring about a physical cleaning, so does God affect a spiritual cleaning in us as our unclean hearts are revealed to us and laid bare before our holy judge who loves us. The Holy Spirit works in a believer to make them more holy so that we can truly obey God to be holy as he is holy. And that is accomplished in us through the face of Christ. Revealed in us. We see finally at the end of our verse. Why or the consequence of him shining in our hearts. And that is to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's a long quote. This is from about 400 years ago. But it's pretty good. The gospel is called the face of Christ by some. Indeed, he has imprinted his own features and the representations of God that, as in the Old Testament, we may behold his glorious outgoings in creation and providence, the deliverance of his people and the punishing of his enemies. So in the New Testament, we may view his glorious counsels of redeeming goodness as the looking upon the picture of a friend preserves the memory of his features and recalls to mind the memorable actions done by him. When we think about the person of Christ, we're reminded of him, his goodness and his kindness toward us. Our affections are warmed for him and our gratitude is increased. And that motivates us to truly love the brothers as ourselves. Well, the spirit creates light in the soul to bring an unbeliever from darkness into light that we may confess allegiance to Christ. And this light is knowing that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh to be saved. One has to understand and believe this. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. He tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and, and is saved. 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now we understand Paul's remark about the foolishness of preaching. The world looks at this and thinks this is the most messed up thing. You stand up in front just reading out of some old book. Trying to convince people of something that people willingly sit there and suffer through it. Why? 
Because in God's manifold wisdom, he has ordained that this is the way of bringing people to faith in Christ and for feeding the sheep. And it's not the instrument. I'm nothing. I'm not a trained speaker. I'm barely a theologian. You're the good one or a bad one. I pray I'm more good than bad at that. But it isn't me. It's the message. That's why it's so incumbent on the minister to bring the message pure, undiluted. Because your soul depends on it. And that is God's God's method of feeding his sheep. Isn't that really the goal of a pastor anyway? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's important in his mind. And so we do it. So speaking about the face of Christ, Hebrews 1, 3 tells us this, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. See, that's kind of a blinding picture there. And it reminds me of back when Moses wanted to see God and God said, you can't do that and live. But here, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and let you see the the, the glory of the end of me, the, the back of me as I pass by. And even that made his face shine such that when he went back down the mountain, the people were blinded by that, like looking into the sun and like, stop. And yet they ask, you know, we want to see you. So are you kidding? You can't even handle that. And we get this, this blinding picture, you know, like trying to drive down the road when it's you know, snow on the ground and so blinding you can barely see to drive. Even brighter than that, it says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. That's why he would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You don't need to see God. You've seen me. That's enough. Couldn't see God anyway. He's spirit. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ does. Colossians 1 to, uh, 3 says he made the world. He upholds it too. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, a place of honor. And by sitting down, that's him saying, it's done. It's done. Nothing more to be done. It's complete. In John twelve forty six, Jesus says this. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is that saving light. There's a lot of light and darkness language in scripture, and he just defined it. I'm the light. Who alone dispels the darkness of Satan, who's actively working to blind and deceive people spiritually. Recall Second Corinthians 4, 4 here this morning that we saw. Where it says, in their case, that is, the world, the God of this world, little g, who's the God of this world, but Satan himself, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's working overtime trying to blind people to make the thing, their situation even worse. And yet Christ triumphs. The darkness has not overcome And tries as Satan might. He cannot prevent the light of Christ from shining through. Breaking through. Amen. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we read, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A forgiven heart will praise God. It can't help it. 
Well, taken with verse four in the face of Christ gives testimony to Paul's belief in Jesus deity in whose face God's glory is truly displayed. Psalm 27, four, may this be our testimony. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For we read elsewhere, for better to be in the courts of the Lord for a day than elsewhere. A thousand. In this life, we are not truly in the house of the Lord physically. Though we are to live in the reality that one day we will. This is our practice time, dear church. This is the practice time. Do you think it's hard to get along with some of your fellow churchmen here? Get ready. We're going to have an eternity with a lot more people than we have now. People that you don't even know. <laughs> we got to learn to love them. We seek to live out the principles of the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5, don't we? And that is excruciatingly difficult right now. He will in time, for he's gracious and he's patient. He's still working on me and you. And he's patient. Well, to summarize, Ephesians 2 is clear. We're all born spiritually bereft, dead, and fearless of the coming condemnation. That's what it said. There's no fear of God for their eyes. Romans 3, right? Yet, sinners should fear. They should. Nahum. Nahum. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. The Lord, now this is speaking specifically of God's judgment on Nineveh the second time around. First time, they kind of straightened up for a while, but then they got even worse. And this is God's judgment on Nineveh here the second time. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm in the clouds or the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. That's the lot of those outside of Christ. People should fear what's coming, but in their hardness of heart, most don't. But who can stand before that? And yet here's our beautiful little diamond in the rough. Notice verse seven. The Lord is good. He's good. Did we just see these other verses here? He doesn't sound very good to me. Sounds like just he's on as a tyrant. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows. Remember that word knows? This is a relationship here. He doesn't just remember. Oh, I know those. Yeah, I've heard of those folks. No. He knows those who take refuge in him. Do you take refuge in the Lord God? He's a stronghold for you. He cares for you. Trust in him. Trust in him. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, we implore you, we beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because this is coming. This is serious, drop dead serious. He's coming. Be ready. Have you found the glory of God in the face of Christ? If so, rejoice. Rejoice. Thanking him for reconciling you to the Father. But if not, I urge you, cry out to him. Jesus, son of David, look on me in mercy. I trust in you. Save my soul. Forgive me. Make me clean. For your glory and my joy. For we read in Hebrews 7 that he is able to save to the uttermost. There's no sin too great to keep you from Christ. He saves to the uttermost. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you are kind and gracious and long-suffering and loving and glorious. And we thank you for it. Thank you for Jesus. For sending him to live the life we had to and couldn't. For paying for our sin in every way we owed and can't. For rising for us for redeeming your enemies, for making us your friends. For your glorious mercy, we thank you. Work your great joy in our hearts. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Make us to be a merciful people to one another as you've shown to us. Thank you for your word. Nourish our hearts for it. Increase our affection for you. Make us to be long-suffering with each other. And to love one another as you have loved us. Increase our joy. Increase our gratitude. Increase our holiness. Lord, what we do not have, give us. What we do not know, teach us. What we are not, make us. For Christ's sake. Amen.